Don't ever tell me what to do Don't you dare tread on me I will do whatever I want to Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. I will bet you have been in conversations with your children or others over what is the most important, what is in fact an objectively valuable goal or understanding versus what's just subjectively satisfying. Uh, We live in a time of relativity where nothing has absolute value for some people. But that doesn't mean that there are not, in fact, absolute values that exist independent of what we think. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's the gospel today. So let's turn to that as we think about the objectively valuable versus subjectively satisfying in our lives. The rule of the law just to give me everything I need and whatever the hell I want. So what is the difference between what is objectively valuable and what is subjectively satisfying. So to say something has objective value means it is a universal value. It's the same value for everybody. Well, here's a really good example. How about heaven? Uh, That this is the place where human beings are made perfect, where we come to our completion. We are who we're supposed to be. That is equally valuable for every single person. What does it mean that something is subjectively value? An object is something outside of me, something I can focus on. Subjective value, on the other hand, is my interior appetites, passions, attachments, feelings, um, name it. And so I love uh, almond joy bars. I don't eat very many of them for all the obvious reasons, but I do like almond joy. I like toast with strawberry preserves on it. But maybe Almond Joy just isn't, like, important to you. Maybe you like dry toast or you don't like toast at all. That is what's subjective. Everybody on the planet, the billions of people exist, can have different opinions about most of the things that we uh, think have at least some value in the world. Whether or not you like British murder mysteries, that is a matter of subjective value. It's understanding when you disagree that there are some things where everybody just gets their opinion. Not so with that which is objectively valuable. That is, it holds an importance for everybody. You know, I don't know if you ever saw the movie The Big Lebowski starring starring Jeff Bridges because it is really fundamentally, fundamentally about the objectively valuable versus the subjectively important or valuable the two different levels of value. The Coen brothers play with this uh, throughout the movie because they are very thoughtful movie producers, writers, and directors. And so uh, the dude will say to people, hey, man, that's just like your opinion, man. Uh, And so, you know, there's a heaven and a hell. The dude would say, hey, man, that's just, you know, like your opinion, man. Uh, Different people can have, like, different goals in life, man. Okay, That is taking something that's an objectively valuable statement and saying that is not, in fact, objectively valuable. Um, It's irrational, and it's really at the root of some of our uh, cultural difficulties, the idea that that we would uh, claim, like, human rights, um, the right to life, an objectively valuable right, 
is really no different than whether you like uh, Hawaiian pizza or pepperoni pizza. And, you know, it, it goes through all sorts of levels in our culture. So, for instance, I don't know if you saw the Super Bowl halftime with Rihanna. I thought visually there were some interesting things about it. I didn't really understand the music. I'm not a fan. That's a subjectively not valuable to me. But I thought that the the grinding and the crotch grabbing of the people involved was just bizarre. Um, that others would find that subjectively satisfying. I find bizarre. And so the problem of the relativistic, the subjectively satisfying, and that all the values are subjectively satisfying, is it actually simply consumes the common life. So it's like human sexuality. Uh, some people think that promiscuity has, is absolutely non-problematic, that consent is the basis for uh, moral decision-making, especially in regard to human sexuality. But uh, au contraire, as it were, you just look at the lawsuits about Harvey Weinstein or the complaints young women have about what's happening sexually in our country. It's not freeing. There's an objective value in human sexuality that when you ignore, you begin to just burn up the possible relationships between men and women. It is why the argument over what is objectively value valuable versus what is subjectively satisfying is the one important argument. And when you think about evangelization, if you started evangelization with Jesus is the Son of God for people whose complete world view is, hey man, that's your opinion, they're basically the dude, um, you're going to have problems. And because you don't have a common starting place, much better to start on these issues that have objective moral value, and that if you don't honor them, uh, it becomes very, very destructive. And obviously what's happening in human sexuality in America right now is one of those situations uh, where we can talk about the dignity of women and men, and that, uh, you know, like what is going on culturally simply does not serve that dignity. You know, St. Paul had a similar problem in 1 Corinthians, and he wrote the letter to 1 Corinthians to the community of Corinth, which is on this isthmus in the very south of, uh, of Greece. It's a place where there's a big shipping canal. It was basically everything built around maritime trade, including the sex trade. And a lot of 1 Corinthians is about the sex trade. Uh, catamites, that would be boy prostitutes, um, incest between a mother and a son, uh, could possibly be a stepmother, but it's still incestuous relationship by affinity. But here's what St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and that temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. What he's recalling is not true wisdom, but worldly wisdom. The Old Testament, especially the Book of Wisdom, had... Um, 
had compared lady wisdom with lady folly. Both would set out a table. Uh, and that at that table, the wise were invited to lady wisdom's table. But you know, uh, lady folly has a huge gra- uh, gathering. When Paul is attacking this understanding that of, of people that is very relativistic in Corinth, as it's undermining the unity of the church, he is relying on an objectively valuable statement that's expressed in metaphor about who we are as individuals and as a church. And so, for instance, um, as individuals, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is what our sacrament of confirmation ought to impress on us. The church as a whole is the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Peter and uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians um, both call us living stones. And in Ephesians, it's chapter 2. In First Peter, it's uh, also chapter 2, that the temple of God is made up of these living stones that are all uh, spirit uh, dwellings. It's why uh, Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many mansions, lots of places he lives, and he's talking about the human soul. It's why in the book of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth, if you remember that, um, there is no temple in the city because the whole city is a temple, because the people are a temple. So what does this have to do with objectively valuable goals in our life. So let's consider, what is the objectively valuable goal in your life? How does it comport with your human dignity, which is realized on all these different levels in your life? What is objectively valuable about it? What is merely subjectively satisfying? We all want things that are subjectively satisfying, but we should never Uh, swap out what's just, you know, uh, the flavor of the day for us, for what our ultimate purpose in life is. St. Paul says it's perfection. It's because Jesus says it's perfection. But what does it mean to say that you are called to perfection? Let's turn to the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and talk about how Jesus talks about perfection. I don't do what I should. I do what's good for me. So the gospel for the seventh Sunday in ordinary time is from Matthew chapter 5, and here's the gospel. Jesus said to his disciples, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, offer no resistance to the one who is evil. When someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other one as well. If anyone wants to go to law with you over your tunic, Hand over your cloak as well. Should anyone press you into service for one mile, go for two miles. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn your back on the one who wants to borrow. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brothers only, what's unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow, that's a tall order, right? And so let's go through that and unpack it, especially 
uh, this ending part about be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So a couple things that come out of Jesus' gospel. How about the idea of non-resistance, radical generosity to another person? At one level, the idea of turning the cheek or not arguing is a very practical idea. Uh, unless people are actually seeking information, how many arguments do you win with people, especially the people you love, when the difference is between what's objectively satisfying and what is subjectively satisfying, objectively valuable, and subjectively satisfying? You know, the answer, if you don't share the same objective value, it's really hard to have an argument. If it's something that's not completely true for two people, how do you ever argue about it? If you're only arguing like, this is important for me, that's important for you, well, you just give up the idea of heaven and hell, that there is something that applies to all people. And the second thing is this, it's how you experience heaven. So let's just say you get into these knockdown, drag down arguments, which you know you cannot win on those terms because you do not share the same objective sense of value about the nature of who God is, who Jesus is, and heaven and hell. Do you just pour gas on the fire by engaging in arguments that cannot on their own terms be resolved? Could you find a different place where you would share the same value? Well, I think it's obvious that most people are in fact not moral relativists. Um, here's a really good example. Start with something that is objectively true no matter who you are and where you're at in whatever time. If you're taking a math class and you know that you did all the problems correctly, you had the same answers as the guy across the room or the girl across the room had, you have the exact same test answers, they get an A++ and you flunk the test, everyone will understand that that's unjust. Uh, and that's staying away from any issues like murder because they all know it's heading for abortion. But you start with something that is an absolutely common experience that you know that it is unjust. Once you admit that that's unjust for everybody everywhere, you have objective value. And then the rest, friends, is just the fact of whether or not you'll uh, recognize objective values when you see them. And that's something you can actually discuss. What is the basis for deciding whether something is objectively valuable for everybody? So if you think about Jesus talking about not resisting evil, well, at the heart of it is what is the level that we're talking about? You have the right to self-defense. As uh, people, we have the obligation of defending the poor and the weak. That's why the bishops talk about people on the border. And there are horrible things going on on the border. Yes, and criminals do come through on the border. That does not change the objective responsibility, objectively important responsibility we have uh, to the poor. Um, and so thinking about how that objective value needs to be met is really where useful discussions take place. You know, uh, what can we do to help other countries be stable uh, and to help undermine the impetus that forces these pe people, especially children, onto the road? Um, the idea of loving your neighbor and, and at least not destabilizing their country. Um, 
when Jesus uses these examples of generosity, if someone asks you for your ketone, he says, which is an undergarment, uh, give your hymasian also, which is your outer garment. So about essential garments, to help people uh, and be generous in your giving. Um, in almsgiving, and we're coming up to Lent, and we should all be concerned about almsgiving, open your wide, wide your hand to your brother. And all uh, Jesus is doing is quoting to Deuteronomy 15 and Proverbs 19. Jewish people were supposed to be generous to their brothers. Um, and we're supposed, everybody's our brother, baptized and not baptized. And so uh, when we think of this non-resistance and radical generosity, it doesn't undermine our obligations of defense of our family and our own lives um, and defense of others. But remember that we do have positive duties uh, with justice uh, to other people's needs. And the one about love your enemies. You know, um, everybody loves the ones that love them, Jesus says, and I, hopefully that's true. But love of enemies, that's a tough one, especially when you feel very wronged. Um, and boy, I've I got to say, I've felt very wronged in my life by people. And I have been wronged in my life, just like you have. But how do you let that dominate your thinking? Because then, in my own personal experience of me, the stuff comes out of your mouth, does not bring credit on you. If you don't love your enemies, if you allow yourself to treat them badly or speak badly about them, they're just sucking you down to their level. Um, and the truth is, is maybe they feel the same way, that they know that they've treated you badly, and they're looking for a way to kind of change that reality. I don't think that's always true, at least in my personal experience, but it doesn't mean that it isn't true in some people's experience. But the idea that there's an objectively important reason to love your enemies, it's because it gives you peace and you become a dwelling place of God. Remember how all of this works in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. We started out at the beginning of John chapter 5, I mean Matthew chapter 5. It was blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So don't be so attached to your feelings. That's why I keep telling myself, John, don't be so attached to your reputation. At least I keep telling myself that. Uh, or all this other stuff. When Jesus talks about radical generosity and loving your enemies, it's really about detachment. Detachment from material goods, detachment uh, from all those spiritual goods. You should have good self-esteem. Hopefully you feel good about yourself. But boy, if uh, protecting all of that against people who attack you um, it brings the worst out of you, then maybe that's where pride kicks in and there is something to confess to the priest. I know, I'm just telling you my confession. i got to deal with it. And so what is the end result of non-resistance and radical generosity to people who are violent and abusive? What is required and what's the point of loving your enemies? And what I would suggest to you is that it's about being perfect. And about being perfect, that is being who God made you to be, being complete, this is the one great objective value for human beings. And the only way we can achieve that is trying to live the life of Christ, 
to try to live the life of God now, today. That's how we experience heaven. So let's bring this all together with a discussion about um, what does it mean to be perfect? I look out for number one. That's what I call perfection. Being who God made you to be. If you do not achieve perfection, you're what you're not supposed to be, and that can't be good. The best thing to do is to understand who you are as a human being in God's eyes and to live that. But sometimes, especially when you look out into the modern world and you wonder why things are the way they are, is you ought to cast a wider net than the Super Bowl halftime show. So I've been working through a book called Le Fleur de Mal, The Flowers of Evil, by an early 19th century poet named Charles Baudelaire. Normally I wouldn't read that kind of stuff, but Dana Joya was on a podcast talking about it because he wrote the introduction uh, to the Fleur de Mal. And I will read anything Dana Joya wrote. Guy is so smart. He understands our culture. And he really can put his finger on things. So brief outline of Fleur de Mal, the flowers of evil. Uh, first edition was like 100 poems. I think he came out with another edition, 150 poems. He died in 1847 in his mother's arms. He had a weird relationship with his mother. Charles Baudelaire had a weird, weird relationship with pretty much everybody in his life. He was what you call a debauche. A debauche is a person who just burns life out. He inherited money when he was young. That's always probably problematic. And uh, he just went through it in a lavish uh ruinous lifestyle until he blew all of his money. Just one little vignette into Charles Baudelaire's life, who was a bit of a, of a, of a uh, just was not well respected in his life, though he was a brilliant writer. But he wrote about sinful things in his book, La Fleur de Ma. He writes, uh, The Litany of Satan, Hail O Satan. He writes a book about uh, different kinds of uh, sexual experiences, uh, some of them are just not pleasant. And uh, he had a, just a case in point in his personal life. He had a girlfriend who was a sex worker in uh, Paris. I think it was his one girlfriend because he just had problems in his relationships. When he ran out of money and had to rely on his mom for money when he was like in his 30s or 40s, um, she finally just dumped him in uh, classic style. Uh, she poisoned his cat, left him a bad note, and uh, exited from his life. And so he dies uh, in the arms of his poor mother, who had just wondered, what the heck did I do wrong? Um, the lament of parents. Um, but in his book, he wrote about just different experiences, getting drunk, drugs, sex, uh, tr uh, different kinds of uh, experiences. And he's a perfect example of somebody who just wants to experience something new every day. And finally, he just burns himself out. The last poem in his book of poetry, the only thing he wrote, by the way, he was the French translator of Edgar Allan Poe. He thought Poe was brilliant. Poe probably is brilliant, but there's another troubled soul. But he saw a common soul in, in Edgar Allan Poe, you know, uh, Follow the House of Ushers, the, uh, oh, the Telltale Heart. Just go through his different poems and weird poems. 
about laying down next to the corpse of his lover, Annabelle Lee. So you see why Charles Baudelaire liked Poe. Uh, and in, when Baudelaire finished up his book of poetry, his last poem was called Le Voyage, and I think it's translated into English as voyaging, and it's basically a metaphor for life, and you're on this ship. It's like basically a cruise ship where there's just one more thing and one more thing and one more thing. And then the very end of the poem is like this, uh, stanza eight. O death, old skipper, it's time to leave the pier. O death, this place is boring. Let's move on. Even if sky and sea are black as tar, our spirits, you well know, are full of sun. Give us your poison, and we will be well. Our minds are burning, and we want to go into the magnitude of heaven or hell to fathom the unknown, to find what's new. Endless experience for the sake of experience, uh, experience sake. And so in objective values like heaven and hell just become reduced to just one more experience, somebody is pretty burned out on life. And so this is not Jesus, but this is the modern world. Why do I talk about Charles Baudelaire? Because he glorifies evil. He glorifies transgression. Transgression is crossing boundaries. There was a boundary. Charles Baudelaire wanted to break it. Does this sound like modern culture? Baudelaire is the first person who glorifies it. So when you think of different kinds of movies or songs or books that glorify evil, who is their French godfather? Charles Baudelaire. I just think the history of ideas and literature are so tightly interwound. And it's wonderful when you have a guide like Dana Joya to help put the pieces together. But it's the problem of taking subjective, uh, subjectively satisfying experiences and trying to give them uh, objective meaning. It's probably, as you've heard, is there's a God-sized hole in everybody. And so when you try to fill it with junk, things that are subjectively satisfying that are not God, uh, it just makes it worse. Until, I guess, at the end of your life, you could say, heaven and hell or hell, what does it matter? It'll be something new. Let Friends, this is not us. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about perfection. And he makes a change to what God the Father said to Moses in Mount Sinai. Because God said in, in Exodus, be perfect as, no, be holy as your, as your Lord is holy. And in Jewish terms, that means set yourself aside for God. And so we do talk about holiness. Um, but Jesus changes it in the Sermon on the Mount to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So when he talks about radical generosity, love of enemies, giving your underwear when, you know, the guy just wants your outer cloak, when a Roman soldier tries to conscript you into forced labor and asks you to carry his pack for a mile, carry it for two miles. Just don't pour gas on the fire. Be detached. And this, my friends, is hard. This is why we need grace. And this is why Joya, Dana Joya, is great. So he's talking about Charles Baudelaire. And Charles Baudelaire is the patron saint of transgression in American culture. Um, everybody who wants to talk about uh, adults consenting to whatever 
but still want to serve uh, Sue Harvey Weinstein because he used his power to get young women to consent to things they should never have consented to. And it's the problem with consent as a basic basis for moral action because we're not ever equal. Somebody's always got more power in one way or the other. So consent is never between equals. That's just a fiction. And so the Catholic understanding about human dignity, we owe other people something in their dignity. This is why joy is great. So he's in this podcast with the great Dr. Jennifer Frey. I love these people. And so he's talking about le fleur de mal and uh, the glorification of the satanic, the satanic litany, which is one of the poems in le fleur de mal. And he says, well, you know who the answer to this is, he says. And he says, it's St. Therese of Lisieux. I thought, okay, I love Dana Joy even more, tell me. And he says, just entering into the day, looking for God in the day, looking for God in other people, looking, and I'm just paraphrasing and actually adding to him, but at St. Therese, the little way, just be love at the center of the church. Read the Sermon on the Mount, and every day you get up, do your best to put it into action. Is that hard? Oh, you betcha it's hard. But my friends, if the, if the alternative is the subjectively satisfying being a godchild of Charles Baudelaire, just run the other direction. Do the best you can, even if it's hard. And so here's what Lumen Gentian said from Vatican II. All the faithful, whatever their condition or state, though each in his own or her own way, are called by the Lord to that perfection of sanctity by which the Father himself is perfect. So be who you are. Be who God made you to be. Be a saint. Hope you enjoy this episode of Oral Valley Catholic. Give me a like if you can. We'll see you next week. Sweet liberty!